Why does a wealthy country like Australia allow its unemployed workers to struggle in poverty without trying to create jobs? You may well ask. Unemployed Workers Fight Back is the Australian Unemployed Workers Union program, part of the sewer program on every second Friday of the month, 5.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. Our social security system is being defunded, privatised and dismantled and the poor and vulnerable are being criminalised and trampled upon. The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union is focused on helping unemployed and underemployed workers deal effectively with the job agencies, empowering them to fight back for their rights. Remember, unemployed workers fight back every second Friday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Valerie Fafala. Today my guests are Anne Maxwell, she's a State Coordinator, Victoria, AUWU, Abigail Lewis, a Research Associate and Communications Manager with Per Capita, Anthony Smith, Suicide Awareness Advocate. So we'll have a great program. Thanks very much. I'd like to um, welcome the State Coordinator, Victoria, of the AUWU, Anne Maxwell, to our program. How are you, Anne? Oh, hi, Valerie. I'm good. Thanks. Uh, now, I was interested to hear that um, last week you went to a conference, Jobs Australia conference, um, yes. and uh, Owen Bennett, who's our president, he was one of the speakers. Um, now, that must have been a very interesting conference. Can you tell us a bit about it? Sure. Well, <clears throat> Jobs Australia is the peak body for the uh, job services providers um, that are non-profits. So there's two sort of groups of job service providers, the for-profit ones and the not-for-profit ones. Mm -hmm. And so this was the annual conference where they do their AGM and so on. And it's a a three-day conference that was held in Melbourne here just last week. And you invited yourself along to it? (laughs) Yes. In a way, sort of wormed my my way in. Um, It's great that the... um, Jobs Australia actually invited Owen and Emma Dawson to speak on the recent um, per capita report called Working It Out. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Yes. Yep. So they got to present on that and Owen did a magnificent job of um, describing just how ruinous and dysfunctional the system is and he's doing that to a room of, uh, I don't know, 150 to 200 people who all work in the industry. So, um, and I think the industry itself is starting to understand, especially the the people who want to re- supply a genuine employment uh, counselling service or help people to get into employment. You know, there's plenty of um, people with their hearts in the right place who really want to help people, but they're working inside a system that's turning them into compliance officers. And so I think there's an understanding in the industry that it's just not working either from the caseworker's point of view or from the job seeker's point of view. Now, one of the things that I understand uh, the conference was about was the demerit point system. And uh, Ty Emerson from the Department of Jobs and Small Business was one of the speakers who was uh, saying that they were dealing with people who willfully are non-compliant. Correct. Can you explain uh, 
some of his talk and his stats, please? Sure. So, yeah, so Ty Emerson um, is uh, the head of the um, the part of the department that's created what they call Targeted Compliance Framework, which is another name for the new demerit point system. Mm-hmm. So he was presenting on what they're seeing in the last, since July the 1st, what they've seen for two months. So he had two months' worth of statistics to present to the conference. Yeah. Um, and in amongst what he was saying was uh, that um, for all the people who are on Job Active, uh, there's been 790,000, <laughs> I can't believe that number actually, 790,000 what he calls non-compliance events. Mm. So that means, I think what that means is that's how many demerit points have been handed out. So a non-compliance event is like somebody doesn't turn up for their appointment um, and they don't have what he calls a valid reason not to be there. This has replaced uh, the reasonable excuse so valid right. reason, um, and you said the staff were instructed, the staff at job um, agencies were instructed not to help the client come up with a valid reason. Right, so they can't coach them to um, help the caseworker, can't co- coach the, the job seeker sitting in front of them um, into describing their circumstances so that it fits the categories that are on the computer. So if you can't come up with what they think is a valid reason, you'll get a demerit point. Um, and so what they've shown, what he's come, he was saying is that in the, in the first two months of this new system, 75% of, of people on Job Active now have one demerit point. And the way the system works is you, have, you can have up to five demerit points and before you can go to Centrelink um, to have those removed from your record. And so for the first five demerit points, what happens is your payments are stopped and you have to phone your job provider and ask them to make another appointment for you so your payments will start again. So you do this stop-start process five times and then you get into what's called a... um, a capability interview <clears throat> and if you end up with five demerit points. And I think I've, I think what happens is that they've had a 1,000 people get up to that point so far in the two months. And uh, so what that means is now you're not just dealing with the job provider, you're actually dealing with a, a Centrelink assessor and they're going to have a look at your situation and you're going to present your case and then they'll decide at that point, whether or not you get kicked off completely off Newstart or not. And so in the first two months of this program, they've um, kicked uh, just over 500 people off Newstart. You said it was interesting. There was a researcher in the audience, Dr Sue Olney, who'd written a chapter on the effect of privatisation on employment services, and she had asked... Apparently, well, you know, if you kick 500 off, doesn't that create a cost somewhere else? Which is a very sensible question because they're always talking about cutting costs and the bottom line. Um, So was was Ty Emerson able to explain that? (laughs) 
not to, um, I don't think not to sue Olney's satisfaction and not to my satisfaction, that's for sure. So I think he mumbled something about it not really being his area. Um, but I was really excited to see that's Dr. Sue Olney in the audience. Um, and she works out of the University of New South Wales and Canberra. And um, she's recently contributed a chapter to a book called Wrong Way, How Privatisation and Economic Reform Backfired. And she, her, the chapter that she contributed to um, is called Markets, Mutual Obligation and Marginalisation, the Evolution of Employment Services in Australia. So she's looked at the effect of privatising employment services um, over the decades. And so she was <laughs> able to ask a really pertinent question, which is, of course, if you're, if you're throwing people who are on Newstart off the benefit, um, are you not creating a cost somewhere else in terms of other services that have to pick up the pieces, um, whether they're offering, you know, uh, shelters or um, mental health counselling or whatever it is? So I think uh, my my impression of um, at least of the talk that Tyamson gave in this case was that the department doesn't look at the big picture. They look in in very narrow terms. Um, and they get so keen about compliance issues that they forget that they're dealing with um, real people. And, um, mm. and they're I working they in were, silos, you know, aren't they? They're not really uh, working as a team with the other departments. No, or even with the um, not-for-profits who are on the ground and see what's happening, um, you know, on the street. And so that was why it was really great to see also um, Sharon Wright made a presentation. Uh, she's from the University of Glasgow and she's her team have done a six-year study to look at what's been going on in the United Kingdom and she's saying that system is, it's even worse than our system in terms of they kick people off benefits for six months or longer. And she was saying it's failing utterly over there and I loved her talk as well because at the end of her talk, you know, and, you, and you've got to remember you're, you're sitting in, you're standing there in front of a room full of 200 people including the bureaucrats in their suits and the department people mm -hmm. and she said if there's anyone in the room who is thinking about introducing harsher compliance, don't. <laughs> and that was her statement. And it was just terrific to hear her say that. And they're, they're ahead of us, you know, a few years ahead of us. And, you know, they're warning us about how bad it can get. And um, and you think that the report um, by AUWU and per capita um, was well received in the audience? Was it something new for them? Uh, yes, I think it really gave them food for thought. Mm -hmm. So I could, I don't know, it's always hard to tell, but it's like, I had a feel that the audience was really listening and paying attention and yeah. absorbing this. Uh, and the Emma was able to go through the key recommendations in the report, which include um, introducing an ombudsman and introducing um, real uh, government employment programs like a job guarantee. Yes. And so these ideas, they might... They're probably being articulated in this kind of setting for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I think 
people don't respond immediately, but I did get a sense that they were sort of taking it on on as new information. And, oh, that's good. Yeah, and it was really great that Owen was able to give um, a lot of the statistics from the AUW's hotline. Yes. And so he was able to talk about uh, the extent of the failures that we're seeing um, in terms of the bullying and the unnecessary activities. That's wonderful, Anne. And um, I know that we're updating the book, and, and as we speak, we're having a, a special conference for Anti-Poverty Week today, aren't we? Yes, I think people might be a bit late because our program um, is after that event, which runs from about one till six. But what I was hoping to talk to you about was uh, that... Um, I think Owen is uh, launching an update of our booklet and I was wondering yes. whether they'd taken into account this explaining this new valid reason. Yes, yes. Well, um, that's one of the main updates in the booklet right. is for people to understand how to negotiate this new demerit point system. Um, <clears throat> so that will be in the booklet and also the new uh, levels of uh, annual activity requirements that have been introduced on September the 20th. So each age group has different sets of um, requirements and different amounts of hours that you need to do and different ways you can fulfil that. So um, looking at voluntary work or paid work or um, study or training or work for the doll. So all of those new um Aspects which were introduced by the department in July 1st, they'll all be in the new booklet. I would thank you very much, um, Anne Maxwell from the AUWU, for really filling us in on that conference and updating us. Thanks very much for being with us tonight. Thank you, Valerie. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. The Gud Bucket Jug Band with Singing Syrups in Phonia.
Okay, Valerie Farfalla back with you with Unemployed Workers Union and I'd like to welcome in my next guest, Abigail Lewis, Research Associate and Communications Manager with Per Capita. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Good to be here. Terrific. Now, you've been doing a recent um, project, you've been involved in that, Working It Out, Employment Services in Australia. Uh, per capita and the AUWU, it was terrific that the two groups were able to get together yeah. on this. Just reading from the, from the executive summary, mm-hmm. um, uh, it seems that um, many people have found that it's just not satisfactory, the employment agency um, situation at the moment. Yeah, overwhelmingly. I mean, what we really wanted to do with this report was foreground the experiences of unemployed workers themselves. You know, that's a really key voice that's lost in all of the conversations around employment services and employment policy. Um, So we really wanted to foreground that. And the more that, um, you know, Owen from the AUWU and David from Monash, the more they spoke to people, you know, the more this just dissatisfaction with the system and key problems with the system came to light. So that was really what we grounded the report on. I understand you had some focus groups and um, yeah. people were able to actually just talk frankly about their yes. experiences and some you've quoted. Yes. And one of the key things that I think that came out was they're a compliance agency for Centrelink, not an employment service. Yep. Now, it seems that that is really what's behind it. That was really what came out of this. You know, an employment services system or a job service provider, it's, it's supposed to be in the name, right? It's supposed to be a service to help unemployed workers into work. Now, what we know from the government's own data is that the jobs just aren't there. I mean... The commonly quoted figure is that there's eight unemployed workers for every job vacancy. Depending on who you count, that can rise to 12 or even 17. So the number of people looking for work is far larger than the number of vacancies available. So in the absence of those jobs, um, Job Active has just become essentially a way to enforce compliance, enforce activities on unemployed workers so that they can collect their social security payment, essentially. And that's really what we found and what we heard from the the unemployed workers we spoke to was that they're doing all of these compliance activities, which they don't find get them any closer to actually getting into work, which is all they want, you know. That's right. And it's it's very undermining, especially Mm. for people who um, are really... Um, feeling anxious when they go along after having sort of tried for 50 jobs or whatever, their confidence is at a real low ebb and and they're very vulnerable then to being um, told what to do. And one of the things we've been doing at the union is Mm. to provide them with empowering information and a guide that they can use to help empower themselves to ask the right questions and and not be pushed around too much by the bullies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... We heard a lot of, you know, one of the things that a job active provider is supposed to do in the first appointment appointment is explain a person's rights and explain the job active deed and explain the service guarantee. And overwhelmingly, what we heard from the people in our focus groups was that their rights weren't explained to them. Um, So absolutely, you know, people go in feeling vulnerable. And I mean, I've been unemployed in the past and I've experienced just that cycle of endless rejection and it really impacts your mental health. So To then go in and, you know, be in that vulnerable position and be told, okay, you have to do this, this, this to get your payments. Um, Yeah, is is an extremely difficult experience for the people that we spoke to. So having that resource that the AUWU provides of explaining their rights and and giving them that resource that they can go into their appointments knowing, 
okay, this is supposed to be mutual obligation, you know? Yes, you can give me things to to do, but also this is what I should expect from you as a service provider. And unfortunately, that end of the bargain just isn't being held up. What we found since 2015 at the union Mm. is that it's changed the whole onus um, of profitability for the agencies is based on outcomes rather than on getting people jobs. Mm -hmm. And so the, the motive to get the jobs isn't there either. The yeah. motive is to get them into things, yeah. all sorts of things. And the unemployed workers we spoke to are, are aware of that, you know, and this was, I think, what we really want to, to show the public with this report is that, um, you know, unemployed workers are knowledgeable about the system they're in, articulate when it comes to policy change. They're fully aware of the, you know, how, pay, how payments for the job service provider are linked to these outcomes and that they're being placed in these, you know, often either either short term, you know, casual, precarious jobs or activities that don't help them get jobs in order to um, create outcome payments for the service provider. And that's just not good enough. Right. And so um, you asked some key questions Mm. uh, in order to get some recommendations, which is a good active way of doing it. Mm. It's an action program rather than just a lot of talk. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the key questions that you asked? That we ask the workers themselves. Well, for example, I think you've said, does Job Active meet its stated goal? Right. Yeah, so we, um, what we really wanted to do was contrast the, um, what, the job, what the Job Active deed says it's going to provide and what the service guarantee says it is with the lived experiences of the people that we spoke to. So, and that's kind of how the report's structured. We went through all of those things. So if a service provider is supposed to work with you to develop your job plan, what is the reality of for an unemployed worker walking into their job service provider and signing up to a job plan? Normally it's that they're essentially forced to sign a job plan in order to receive their payments, even though there's supposed to be room for negotiation. And so the report kind of goes through all of those different things. You know, does your job service provider um, identify your strengths and any challenges you face to increase your job readiness? Did they refer you to suitable jobs? Did they match you to a suitable work for the doll placement where appropriate? Is work for the doll suitable for your needs at all? You know, all of all of those things. Um, and we found that in every instance, the services that are guaranteed by Job Active are not being provided. Yeah, look, this is true. Um, were some of the um, people in the focus group surprised that they actually could be consulted about their job plans? Yeah. I mean, some people, um, many of the people in the focus groups were unaware of certain elements that were a part of the deed or part of the service guarantee. For example, that they were supposed to have their rights explained to them at the start. For example, that they are supposed to have a choice of job service provider, you know, not just automatically assigned to one. They're supposed to be able to take the time and go away and view the star ratings. Most people that we spoke to didn't know the star rating of their job service provider, and they just felt that it had been an automated process essentially where they'd been assigned to um, a job service provider without knowing anything about the quality of the service and just essentially shunted through the steps in order to create outcome payments for the service provider. And of course Centrelink seems to have offloaded Mm. onto the agencies where people can't really um, consult and appeal properly which is a real deprivation of their rights. Absolutely one of our key recommendations is about restoring some service provision to the public sector. A key change that's happened um, in the last year so in 2017 um, Centrelink oversight was removed from the penalties process essentially. Um, 
you know, you would think that that was a legal right. Yeah, especially when you consider the error rates. I mean, in I think the year 2015 to 2016, this is when Centrelink still had oversight. Mm. So every time a, a financial penalty was applied on an unemployed worker for breach of compliance or whatever it might be, Centrelink had oversight of that process. Mm. And it found that close to 50% of the financial penalty, penalties imposed by job service providers were done in error when the unemployed worker did have a reasonable excuse or just because the provider submitted it in error. I mean, a 50% error rate, thats um, that was a million people had their essential benefits cut when they did nothing wrong. How can we have a 50% error rate and then, then in 2017 remove Centrelink oversight? So now... I assume that error rate is just continuing without any government oversight at all. Not only that, if um, if these job providers, if the employees there aren't trained properly, yes. you'd, you'd assume that the error rate would go up even more. Yeah, and another thing that we've recommended is um, training for standardised training for job active consultants because, I mean, the consultants themselves are, are operating under extreme pressure, like huge caseloads, oh, yes. you know, no training at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, one of our key recommendations is standardised training and uh, limits on caseload size. There's huge turnover in that job of a job active consultant because the conditions are just not great for the people that work there. And we even heard stories from some of the people we spoke to where them and their job active consultant were looking for the same jobs and applying for the same jobs. And the job active consultant was saying to the unemployed worker, you know, there's nothing out there. I'm looking myself and I can't find anything, you know, and they're looking for the same. So, yeah, absolutely. There needs to be standardized training and and limits on caseload sizes and just better conditions for the consultants themselves that they can provide the service. The um, apparently um, so-called welfare, well, we call it social security mm-hmm. entitlements, yes. not welfare. That's no. a very dismissive <laughs> view. But making it the second largest area of government procurement mm. outside the defence portfolio. Mm. And if you see it in terms of procurement and you, you see the way it's handled, it is um, not a service that's um, meant to be friendly to mm. the unemployed worker. In fact, um, my view, and it's not only mine, it's other people's too, is that the government uh, is quite keen for people to get off uh, going to receive mm. their new start. And if they can get, get them off that, then they can get the unemployment figures down. So mm-hmm. they're not really acting in the interests of um, new start recipients because they want to, bottom line is the money. They want yeah. to cut the costs. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, fundamentally, you know, the government can can talk all at once about wanting to get people off Newstart, but the jobs just aren't there and they're not creating the jobs. Um, so a key, our first key recommendation actually is government, for the government to recommit to full employment, which was Australian policy until the mid-70s, commitment to full employment. And that's um, been redefined, hasn't it? It's around 5%. Yes, yeah. Um, and, uh, and doing that uh, possibly through some kind of job guarantee, which we think should be trialled um, in the near future. Oh, that sounds unlikely, but it's, <laughs> look, it's, it's a very good idea. Um, also, one of the issues I think that's important is underemployment, yes. and you would too. Yeah. But someone might have three hours' work a week, so they don't appear on the unemployed figure. Yep. That's not enough to pay the rent. No, it's certainly not. And, you know, that when, when the government talks about jobs and growth, um, a lot of those jobs that have been created are these, you know, part-time precarious jobs. And what that also um, fails to take into consideration from the perspective of unemployed workers is that 
if a job comes up and an unemployed worker uh, refuses to take it, then they're immediately breached, immediately have their payments cut. But And called job snobs. Yeah, absolutely. But the cost you know, of, of taking a job that's, say, three hours a week, which is precarious and which could disappear in the next fortnight, and then having to re-engage with New Start and go through all of the, uh, all, all, the whole process again from the start and endure a period without payments, that's a prohibitive cost for a lot of, for a lot of unemployed workers. Um, and that's not, um, yeah, that's not a, a good outcome. The unemployed workers want proper jobs. Not only that, if they've got to, when you think of the transport costs and things yeah. of coming and going from these jobs, it's sometimes not worth their while to go for Absolutely. those jobs for the mere three hours. Absolutely. I mean, unemployed workers shouldn't have to just accept anything that comes their way because that's the position that they're in. They should have choice and agency just like everyone else. So absolutely, you know, if, if, if they're being referred to jobs that are too far away, that they can't access, that aren't flexible in terms of childcare or, you know, where they're forced to stand on their feet all day, even though they have a disability, you know, not taking those jobs shouldn't result in a compliance breach that pushes that person into poverty. That's right. Now, this report is published at a time when the Department of Jobs and Small Business is undertaking a review on the future of employment services under the guidance of an expert advisory panel chaired by Sandra McPhee. Mm-hmm. And during an inquiry into the appropriateness and effectiveness of the objectives, design, implementation and evaluation of Job Active by the Senate Education and Employment References Committee. So um, how responsive has that group been? Have they been in contact? So we have submitted this report. As, so it's an open submission process. So we have submitted this. Other organisations in our space, um, you probably will have seen today, ACOS released a yeah. um, a big survey of, of job active users. So a lot of different organisations are um, sub- this, submitting at the moment to this process. Um, we expect that they will take that into account as they do their... Um, as they do their consideration, but that is um, a, a process, obviously an inquiry process. Um, but yes, yes, we've been responsive. Have you been invited, has per capita been invited to um, to engage more with these groups to actually be consulted about a lot of these issues? Not yet. The submissions haven't closed yet. So my understanding is that the way it works is that they take submissions and then they will hold hearings. Um Per capita is regularly invited to testify at public hearings based on submissions that we make. For example, um, the Senate inquiry into the future of work and workers. We published a report around that and we were invited to testify. So that's certainly what we'd be hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, look, all the best with that. It's terrific that this report has gone out, working it out. I think it's wonderful. And (laughs) it's wonderful that employed people have been, unemployed people have been consulted. That was absolutely our priority. Yes. Yeah. As with the cashless welfare card, there's always talk about community consultation, but Mm. unless we can really see it and quantify it, there's no real guarantee. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, policymakers need to hear the voices of the people that use the service that they're attempting to to, to overhaul, and also the public needs to hear how um, knowledge, you know, policy knowledgeable unemployed workers are, and and how um, innovative they are in terms of the solutions that they come up with to the system to you know to get rid of this stereotype that unfortunately um, exists. has been created deliberately yeah. and yeah. and. Uh, goes through the media every day this demonizing Uh, one woman put it very well where she said um 
make the system about helping people get work instead of about punishing people. Exactly. I mean, it's absurd when you think that um, the system is supposed to be about getting people into work, but it also is responsible for punishing those people. And that's why one of our, again, one of our key recommendations is to separate compliance from service provision. I mean, that should be two different your your job service agency shouldn't also be the one that's breaching you. We believe it's a conflict of interest, isn't it? It is absolutely a conflict of interest. So we believe that you know responsibility and oversight for penalties should be reinstalled to the public sector, reinstalled to the government. If you know if it all if it all can't be, then at least the um, oversight of penalties restored to the public sector and not be in the remit of your job service agency where you're supposed to go to receive support getting back into work. Now, just one more thing. Um, the legal aspects of this, I would have thought the conflict of interest would be questioned by legal groups mm. in addition to the work for the dole lack mm-hmm. of safety, which yeah. hasn't been taken on, taken on board by the federal government properly. Yeah. It's just been put off and put off and the former minister got away with putting it off. Don't you think that's an important issue too, that if the government's going to put people in these work for the dole programs, that they need to be mm-hmm. safe? Absolutely. The OH&S needs to be exactly the same as it is in workplaces. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not, quite, it's not um, defined as work. Yeah. I mean, you know, my personal opinion is that work for the dole is, is such a misnomer. You know, if, if there's work to be done, then it should be a job. I mean, it's absurd that, um, that we're having people you know, go go to these work for the doll sites and, and work for their social security instead of for straightforward payment, which is you it's know, like which slavery, is what Yeah, which it? is what which is what they should be. And um, you know, for me personally, some of the most difficult stories to listen to were stories of work for the doll. You know, mm-hmm. yes, the the lack of safety, which is obviously um you know, a huge scandal that I agree hasn't had the attention that it deserves, but also the bullying on work for the doll sites, you know, the sense that people felt that, you know, they were there and some manager would say, um, oh, have the work for the doll girl do it, you know, about Mm. just small or, um, you know, um, tedious tasks, that kind of thing. Um, One man whose sister used to come home crying every day from work for the doll, um, just this, te- you know, stories of terrible experiences on this program. And ACOS today, as part of their, um, the things that, not today, last Tuesday, I think they released it, um, have have advocated for abolishing work for the doll completely. Yeah. Okay. And sorry, just one more thing yeah. too. You know, over the last year or two, we've been talking about um, traineeships and, um, um, you know, having, having a few weeks job experience uh, in exchange for a small increase in payments mm. how has that been working um I'm didn't not, you look at that issue we have that was outside yeah kind yeah. of a separate issue same with um the community developed pro- uh, programs in indigenous communities all yeah. really important issues Can't but just everything. outside the remit of this report yeah. yeah yeah all right well um thank you very much abigail lewis for coming in thank from the Good afternoon. Again, I'm Valerie Fafala and you're with Unemployed Workers Fight Back on the Sewer Program, 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am, digital podcasts and streaming live from 3cr.org.au. And I am talking to Anthony Smith, who's a suicide prevention advocate and um, he's got quite a lot of experience in this area as a consultant, educator and facilitator, national coordinator of Men's Watch, and uh, you've you've been a guest speaker at many um, suicide safety prevention groups, and I, I understand you were recently talking and 
or attending per capita, uh, the per capita report. Is that right? That's right, yes. Um, very interested in what you have to say about suicide and unemployment um, and your, a situational approach to suicide prevention. This is rather than seeing it as a mental health issue and medicalising it, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. We, we challenge in this whole notion of the language around mental health and mental disorder you know, and, and uh, mental condition that... that um, the evidence is pretty clear that the majority of people who come to the tragedy of suicide have come uh, through adverse life experiences. So we're t- tending to use the language around situational suicide, situational distress. Um, uh, yeah, and the evidence is that the majority of deaths do not have a prior you know, psychiatric condition or what have you. That's right. I think you you argue more for the fact that it's not an individual situation and often it's really the social setting um, and they could be in a very uh, distressful situation. Well, as you you give the example of farmers um, who are completely desperate in many situations and the mental health approach is all very well, but it also depends on their situations, doesn't it, in their communities? Absolutely, and uh, that you know, we're having a lot of conversations with um, a lot of uh, people from around the country in the drought-affected areas. And you know, as one um, academic put it, droughts don't kill people. You know, it, it's the it's the burden that uh, farming families are carrying as a result of the droughts and the inflexible policies by you know financial organisations in terms of loan repayments. Uh, and then on top of that, there's often the family breakdown because things have become so demanding. Um, uh, so, you, you know, this it, it's not helpful to be just reducing this to the mental health, you know, uh, of the individual, whether or not the farmer is depressed or not. It, 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 and not only is it not helpful, the, the evidence from research by... Um, ASRAP, the Australian Institute of Suicide Research and Pre- Prevention, uh, Griffiths University in Queensland, Dr Samara McFedrin, uh, published 2013. Of 20 years of, of um, male suicide deaths in Queensland, the rural deaths, 40% of those men had actually been in contact with the mental health system, which is often the GP, the GP is the gateway into the mental health system um, in, the, in the majority of cases in Australia. Uh, uh, 40% of those men had been in contact with the mental health system within three months prior to their death. Yeah. Now, now that's a horrific consideration um, that I think we, 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 the current approach to suicide prevention just tends to disregard that. So, so one of the things that we say is it's, it's not enough just to try and push these men and, and maybe women as well who are in trouble to go and talk to somebody. What we need is, is services that, that are better able to support these people um, according to their needs. And also another thing that would 
you know, putting them in a category and saying, oh, you've got anxiety, you've got an anxiety disorder, or you've got depression, or that's not necessarily going to inspire these men. It's going to victimise them in a way, isn't it? Um, well, and we talk, this whole talk about stigma, yeah. well, well, uh, you know, what about the stigma of unemployment? Yes. You know, we, um, we know so, that very well as part of the Unemployed Workers Union. That's why we call it Unemployed Workers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they've been um, stigmatised so much and even the terms welfare is stigmatising, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so, 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 so unemployed people and... Um, you know, we can talk about the National Coronial Information System data on employment status, if you like. Yes, please um, do. Certainly, I can talk about that in, in relation to suicides. But um, yeah, the burden that these people are carrying is is enormous. Now, you said there were twenty six thousand seven hundred and seventy nine deaths identified um, with the date of notification between well two thousand and one and two thousand and thirteen that were reported to a state or territory coroner where the deceased died as a result of an act of intentional self-harm. This is, um, this is huge, and the average you're saying is about 2,230 per calendar year, which is well, 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 huge. Actually, just in the last year, had another rise of uh, about over 9%. The figure is now over 3,000. Oh, goodness. In a year, that, and that's been rising since the, the earlier in the 2000s. Every year, uh, uh, by last year, a small, a small reduction, but but about 30, um, uh, 33% since about 2004, 2005. So, Terrible. Uh, you know, the position we take is that what our governments and our philanthropic organisations and our, our corporate social responsibility type financing tends to do is just keep ploughing more and more money into the current approach, which is clearly not helping uh, reduce the toll of suicide deaths in this country. And, and there are those who argue, and there's this published peer-reviewed um, uh, articles on this, that, that in fact, not only are they not helping reduce it, that, that a lot of the high-profile, well-funded organisations, whether they're government, bureaucracy or not-for-profits, are actually a part of the problem. Um, and, and one of the reasons we say that is because they disregard this really clear um, evidence that the majority of people who kill themselves in this country are not employed. That is very, very clear from the NCIS data. But, but what these not-for-profit um, and government organisations, the people who are being paid to go out and present this information is they give a, a selective view of this that distorts the picture. So, so um, if you look at the intentional self-harm fatalities 2001 to 2013, if you, if you look at just employed against unemployed, it looks rather like there are more employed people than unemployed people that kill themselves, 12,000 over that period to 6,600. However, what they disregard completely are these other categories, and one that I like to point out, uh, retired pensioner. Um, there are literally thousands of these over that period of time, uh, averaging about 250 suicide deaths a year of, of people of working age who, had, who are 
categorised as retired slash pensioner. Now, the question is, how come there are so many of those people? Well, well because a large number of, um, uh, of, of, of people who are on Newstart get transitioned across from Newstart onto disability pension. And, and the government's own figures show um, that there's over 800,000 people on a disability support pension at June 2015, of those, 39.4% uh, were moved across from New Start. Right. Now, that's an extraordinary figure. And, and, and we know that um, a large number of those are mature-age men who, who, who have been, um, you know, hard physical labour for their career as a bricklayer, carpenter, plasterer, what have you, and can't do the physical labour anymore, but the um, government-funded employment services keep pushing them to, to, to do this work. So they end up getting a doctor's certificate to say they can't do it, so then they get encouraged, and that's my polite term, generally it's rather a coercion, across to uh, um, the disability support pension. Is it a higher rate of income, though, that they get by being transferred across? Yeah, they do get a little bit more money, but they, they, they're even less likely to get work. But my point is they are no longer then counted as unemployed. That's all part of so, the deal, isn't it, to get the unemployed figures down and to cut the budget, um, the so-called welfare budget. Um, it's also been described as uh, the job agencies have been complied, uh, described as a compliance agency for Centrelink, not an employment service. So those men are, and other women as well, they're, they're getting that full punishment um, of the compliance for the pittance, which is New Start. So it's really um, a real blow to their pride and having worked for many years and to be treated like that um, is just... Shocking, isn't it? So undermining. Yes. And so, as you can see for yourself from those figures, um, these are not small figures. These are just that one category of retired pensioner yeah. um, of working age, roughly 250 suicide deaths a year amongst that category, and there is not one um, strategy or activity in our country uh, uh, looking at the suicide prevention for them. Well, you said, I think, earlier that you had to actually fund the NCIS report and, and put the whole thing together. How, how's it been received by the government? Have you had any input from them? Well, um, you know, I, I was fully aware of uh, the, the likelihood that that's what the figures would look like. Um, and I did a presentation... I might say I was on the board of Suicide Prevention Australia back in 06, 07, yeah. um, and I, I did a presentation because I had worked for uh, about 10 years prior to that with the coroner on the central coast of New South Wales. Yeah. So we had a pretty good picture of what was really going on. So, so, so I've been trying to get a better look um, uh, at employment status for you know a good more than 10 years, um, but nobody was helping this. So the Australian Institute of Male Health and Studies, um, we uh, found a small amount of money to fund the National Coronial Information System, who use exactly the same data as the ABS, um, to, to, to 
um, analyse employment status. And, yeah, but what's been the government response? Are they, are they interested or are they just sort of burying the report or what? Well, there's been no, no, no response. We've certainly, for the last couple of years, tried to push this around to get some sort of support, but um, uh, there's been nobody forthcoming about that. So we continue to soldier on um, to, to try and make this a key part of, as we were talking earlier, of the situational approach to suicide prevention. Um, it seems to hinge on this too. As, as you um, say in the report, under a, a heading entitled Contextual Issues of Suicide Prevention Initiatives Focused on the Unemployed, you say um, an important element of their social connectedness is for them to have access to new employment, and this means meaningful and remunerative work and occupation. Um, and that's what you're talking about, those sort of um, a decent job, non-demeaning traditional income support responses. Well, they have been very demeaning, so that wouldn't help at all. But you're talking about real jobs, and this is the issue that they're, this is what they're not providing. This is what they're not owning up to, that oh, and there's up to 18 um, unemployed people going for the one job. So the government is, is not um, facing this issue, not providing jobs, is it? No, that's right. And, 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 and um, it's, it's not just the current um, coalition government. No, that's Labor right. Party, why this were, were just as uh, poor. I mean, they had the opportunity to do something about it, but really uh, left this as, as a non-priority. So um, you're also involved in, in, in fact, the National Coordinator of Men's Watch. Are you still involved in that? On a um, uh, volunteer basis, you see, I, I myself have, uh, am unemployed, yep. but um, as I'm over 55, I, I, I've um, got the OK to do voluntary work. So so I do that. Um, I mean, there's a small amount of paid consultative work comes out of that, but very, very small. We're hoping that that changes, and we're involved in a lot of um, discussions around the country at the moment. Um, as people, I, I think, are coming to realise that, you know, the current approach, we've got to step aside. We, we have to um, uh, directly challenge the the way that it's done um, and more and more people uh, are coming on board. So hopefully that turns into um, s s some more paid work for me and some of my colleagues um, and uh, so, so that we can put better resource behind the lobbying and advocacy for things like better support for unemployed people. Um, I'm talking to Anthony Smith, who is a suicide prevention advocate. And Anthony, when you look at the um, situation of suicide in Aboriginal communities too, um, you can see the situational distress there as well. Um, that's an obvious way of, of showing, isn't it? Where there's homelessness and poverty, no jobs... Um, all those other issues come together to add to the situational distress, let alone sing, um, sing, single out people as individuals who have mental health issues and just dealing with them individually. Um, so I think we need to see it more in a collective way of, of the community, um, don't we? Yeah, and that's what I say. What, what, what we need to be doing is, is making sure that services take a greater responsibility in, in providing um, support yeah. for, 
uh, people uh, in, in, in those um, often dire circumstances, rather than just disregarding them, you know, like I say, the example of the farmer, well, let's help the farmer with the, with the uh, enormous um, debts they may have on the farm, rather than just encourage them to go to talk to the GP about their depression. Yeah, that's right. There are many areas. Um, as you say, with financial, uh, there, the financial problems are causing them enormous distress as well. Yeah. All right. Well, look, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, and um, I think you've really enlightened us a lot and listeners will be really keen and we'll be following up with you on some of these issues in the future as well. So uh, thank you very much for coming okay, on to Unemployment. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. 
We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.